Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. This is episode 57. I'm not quite sure what I want to call this yet. Part of me wants to call it American Nazis too. And another part of me wants to call it Sangerism, like Darwinism and Malthusianism and Daltonianism and Spencerianism and Sangerism. I mean, it just, you know, kind of works the theme. Uh, David Penn here, very glad that you're back. Thank you very much. I want to thank Free People Radio. They're giving us a heck of a platform, and this is a great new media company. Got a lot of new products coming out. It's a great opportunity to provide information, give a forum to candidates, build a community. You know, we're doing something together here. We are truth-seeking media, and we're supported by the patriot economy, those businesses and business people who are supporting the movement. So if you would please allow me, let me talk for a minute about TireGet. TireGet is an online e-commerce retail tire store. All the tires that you need. I am the proprietor. I try to feature American-made products, major brand products. These tires are there at the lowest possible advertised price, which, of course, is controlled by the manufacturers. It's called the Manufactured Suggested Pricing. Doesn't get any better than that. And we have service. So when you go to the site, TireGet, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com, when you go to the site, find the tires that you need, you can actually have the tires shipped directly to the installer, to the local service facility where they, these tires can get mounted. You pay for all your service for a mount, a balance, a new valve stem, and a disposal. You pay for it on the site. When you show up at your appointed time, they slap the tires on. You're out the door cashless. It's everything you need at one website, Tires and Service, and we want to thank you for supporting the movement. All right, there you go. That's a one-minute live read. Now, why am I doing that? Well, Target's going to be everywhere. You're going to see it. And as I say, yes, I'm not a communist. I'd like to get rich. But right now, please help us not go broke. This is a movement. It requires money. We're not in this for the money. We're in this to preserve a country called the United States of America to enhance human well-being and the health of the American citizen. We really are serious about it, and we're asking for your help. We're asking you for you, for you to join the community. PrecinctStrategy.com, a great way to get involved in the game of politics. PrecinctStrategy.com, where you'll go for a tutorial on everything you need to know to get in the game of politics. Get off the bench. Get a stake in the game. It's a great place to go. We, some of us, many of us, are going to get involved in politics. I am personally asking for 24 hours a year for American citizens to get involved in the political process beyond voting. For those of you that would like to go 24 hours a day, seven days a week, hey, come on down. We need you. We need warriors. But people have families. They have jobs. They have other interests. We get it. Your American citizenship must be defended by who? By you. If you don't do it, nobody else will. When you do it 24 hours a year, that's all you need to do to pull this country back from the brink of communism and globalism. And if that matters to you, 24 hours a year, is this country, is your freedom and well-being worth 24 hours a year? Because if we can't find enough people that think freedom and well-being is worth 24 hours a year, hey, guess what? Slavery and death. That's right, slavery and death. And, you know, speaking of slavery and death, huh, it's on a continuum. Uh, 
I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this and sharing it with you, and I really appreciate you conversing with me. We had a American Nazis premiered Tuesday night, 9 p.m. We had a big audience watching the premiere, but nobody put anything in the live chat. And I'm not going to go first, because if you just want to watch, I think that's great. But if you want to communicate with me, if I'm in the live chat, I will communicate because we're building a community. So I want to thank all of you. Really appreciate it. Sometimes I wonder if the subject matter is getting so horrifying, nobody wants to say anything. So let me not disappoint you. Today will be another horrifying uh, podcast. And we're working on a theme here. And the theme we're working on is that Nazism is a political movement like Republicanism, like being a Democrat. It's a strategy, a political strategy that was intended to operationalize a set of beliefs, scientism beliefs, in the supremacy of a master race using eugenics and genocide for the arrogance of man to intervene into the life process and elevate one group and diminish everybody else, clip them out. That's what Nazism was. And I've been saying, and I, you know, we're an underground, this is an underground transmission. I'm thinking to myself as if I'm in the underground. I have to be careful what I say. So I'm depending on you, my viewers and my listeners, to have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. However, if you ask me a question online, or you, we're going to have many ways for you to interact with us. Right now it's tiregit.com support. You know, Royce White's going to bring up his Senate campaign website. Right on the landing page, I hope it says, click here if you want to be a Royce White delegate. I mean, we are going to be in touch with you because what we're saying is is that this eugenicist genocidal impulse, which comes out of Brit, the, you know, the, the British Empire, the Crown's financing of Darwin and Spencer and Galton, and now we're going to talk about Mag Margaret Sanger today because she was part of that lineage. We're going to look at her today. Uh, this is eugenics and genocide. And my point, what I'm sharing is, the Nazis lost a battle called World War II. But the philosophy continues to this day. And it continues back in time and forward in time because it's in our heads. And I'm, we're going to look at some of this today. In fact, without further ado, Tanner, can you play these first two clips? Thank you very much. In Germany, the start of the war marked a change in policy towards the mentally sick and handicapped. Hitler himself signed the secret order to start putting them to death. Reinhard Spitzi had heard him give his reasons. And he said, why should we spend money for a fool, for a hopeless, ill person, if I can do with the same money so much good for a poor peasant's kid. The decision brought the reality of racial policy home to countless ordinary families with a sick relative. Meine Mutter ist in December 1931, my mother had been sent to the clinic for nervous diseases in Frankfurt am Main because of depression and anxiety about her husband. 
Murray Rao's mother was eventually diagnosed as an incurable schizophrenic. Without her family's knowledge, she was brought to the Hadamar Psychiatric Clinic, which became a centre for killing the mentally disabled. They were led to the cellar and killed with carbon monoxide gas, up to 60 at a time, over 10,000 in Hadamar alone. Next door was a crude operating slab where brains and organs were removed for scientific research. The Rouse were told their mother had died of complications from warts on her lip. They only learned the truth years later. The fact that these people were murdered is a disgrace for our whole society. Some Germans dared to protest publicly against the euthanasia. The gassing was stopped, but killing by injection and starvation continued secretly. Do you believe in sin? When I say believe, I don't mean in believe in committing sin. Do you believe there is such a thing as, a, as sin? Well, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being, practically, delinquents, Prisoners, all sorts of things, just mark when they're born. That, to me, is the greatest sin that people can, can commit. But sin in the ordinary sense that we regard it, do you believe or do you not believe? Well, what? What would they be? Do you believe that infidelity is a sin? Well, I don't, I'm not going to specify what I think is sin. I've stated what I think is the worst sin. The yes, sin. but then you asked me to say what, and I, and I said what, and, and, and uh, you refused to answer me? Ah, yes, I don't know about infidelity. It has so many personalities to it and what a person's own belief is. You can't, I couldn't generalize um, any of those things. Well, I'm playing these two things together for a reason. That was the very famous Margaret Sanger, who we're going to investigate today. Uh, you know, she was the, uh, she's the main driver that created uh, the birth control movement here in the, 20th century and into the 21st century here in America. And I know this is quite a loaded topic and I have many uh, women who follow the podcast and I'm not, I'm only showing you the truth. I'm not even going to embellish a lot of this stuff because we're going to let Margaret Sanger speak for herself for quite a long time here uh, because she does not believe in God. That's, you know, she just doesn't believe in God. I mean, she's saying we had an SS officer saying one thing, and we had Margaret Sanger saying almost the same thing in her own unique and inimitable style. Okay? So we've got abortion. We have birth control. So it starts out with birth control, went to abortion, euthanasia, genocide. What is the common denominator of birth control, abortion, which is a birth control, euthanasia, which is the alleviation of human suffering, and then genocide. What's the common thing? And the common theme is eugenics. Eugenics, eugenics, eugenics. Science. This is the gift of science. And we've got two competing ideologies were in the penultimate battle right now of this 
competition between life and death is created by God and life and death is in the hands of a supreme being, or we're here by a series of serendipitous events and man and woman have the right and power to shape our own biological destinies. Two competing ideologies. It's at the root of everything we're seeing. When we understand the substrate, the bedrock of the argument, everything else will start to make sense. Because, you know, when I look at it without understanding the bedrock, it's very friggin' confusing. But when I know the bedrock, then I can start to make sense of it for myself as Professor Penn. So here's the sense I've made of it. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. And blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. So, uh, sometimes because issues are so laden with charge, they're so charged. You know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And uh, I would like to think I'm no longer a fool. I am not here to enforce an opinion on this audience. What I'm going to do is play a very long interview. Actually, it was Mike Wallace. For people of my generation, he was the sine qua non interviewer. His son, Chris Wallace, was on Fox News for decades, and now he's moved on to, I can't remember where he moved on because I'm not watching that channel. Maybe it's CNN. I don't know where he went. But uh, really a great interview with Margaret Sanger from 1957. And we're going to hear from Margaret Sanger. And, I'm, I, you know, I may not interrupt it at all, or if I do, it's just because I want to bring something out because she's hard to understand. She's a mumble mouth. And um, she's tricky. That I'm going to see. You're going to see it yourself. I mean, she says, I didn't say that. I didn't say, you know, because Mike Wallace is a great interviewer and he's done his homework. Uh, who, when did I write that? When did I say, I don't remember that. You know, she's rather evasive. Uh, and we must also remember that Mike Wallace is no conservative. Okay, this guy was the lion of the left. This was CBS News back in the 50s. He was on air into the 80s. He was a leftist of the highest order. And so we're not talking about a conflict-orientated event. We're talking about a journalist trying to do journalism as journalism was done 
1957. So without further ado, let's watch 27 minutes of Margaret Sanger, who, by the way, uh, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. She wrote a book in 1920 endorsing negative eugenics. That's genocide. Go read the book. Uh, I'm not making this up. You can go see it on Wikipedia. And that's no conservative website, right? Uh, she was very tied into the British intellectual tradition that goes right back to uh, Darwin. She was part of that movement, and she was um, she was big in this. In the morality of birth control, in that, a speech she gave in 1921, she divided society into three groups, the educated and informed class that regulated the size of their families, the intelligent and responsible who desired to control their families in spite of lacking the means or the knowledge of how to do so, and the irresponsible and reckless people whose religious scruples, this is a quote, prevent their exercising control over their numbers. Sanger concluded, quote, there is no, there is no doubt in the minds of all thinking people that the procreation of this group should be stopped. Well, wait a second. Let's put these two quotes together before we listen to her, because this is the substrate of Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger believed in three groups of people. The third group was a group with religious scruples. The religious that believed in God, here's her quote, that prevent their exercising control over their numbers. Their religious scruples prevent that. And she concluded a quote, there is no doubt in the minds of all thinking people that the procreation of this religious group, I added the word religious, should be stopped. Okay, Tanner, let's let everybody know, let you know, I mean, do you know who Margaret Sanger is? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew the name and then we had the discussion yesterday where you kind of taught me who she actually is. Oh, you're going to get a dose of it now. I'm not, you know, I'm editorializing. I don't want to editorialize. Look, just watch it. I'm going to maybe make a comment, maybe not. Just depends how I feel. But I think all of us need to see this and understand that there is eugenics and genocide coming out of the British intellectual tradition of scientism that first came birth control, then came abortion, then came euthanasia, which is making a big comeback here in the United States, particularly in Minnesota, and then there's genocide. And those categories are related, and let's let Margaret Sanger tell us all about it. Please play it. Good evening. What you're about to witness is an unrehearsed, uncensored interview on the issue of birth control. It will be a free discussion of an adult topic, a topic that we feel merits public examination. My name is Mike Wallace. The cigarette is Philip Morris. New Philip Morris, probably the best natural smoke you ever tasted. Can you stop Presents that, please? Tanner, do not edit this out, <laughs> because I think the audience needs to see where we were just very recently. Okay? Please continue. The Mike Wallace Interview. 
Tonight, we go after the story of the woman who violated convention and bucked powerful opposition to lead the birth control movement in America. You see her behind me, she's Mrs. Margaret Sanger, who was thrown into jail eight different times for her efforts. If you're curious to know why Mrs. Sanger has devoted her life to the birth control movement, if you'd like to hear her answer to the charge that birth control is a sin, and if you want to get her views on politics, divorce, and God, we'll go after those stories in just a moment. My guests' opinions are not necessarily mine. The stations are my sponsors, Philip Morris Incorporated, but whether you agree or disagree, we feel that none should deny the right of these views to be broadcast. One might say that the basis of this program is fact and fiction. And using that yardstick, I'd like to apply it to something I usually talk about at this time, and that is this, Philip Morris cigarettes. Here's why I smoke them and enjoy them. Fact one. Today's Philip Morris is no ordinary blend. It's a special blend of domestic and imported tobaccos. Opinion? My taste may be different from yours, but on this I think we can agree. This cigarette tastes natural. I think you'll like it. Fact two. Today's Philip Morris is made of mild, lighter leaf tobaccos. Opinion. To me, that accounts for the genuine mildness I get in every puff. It's what I call a man's kind of mildness. There's no filter, no fooling, no artificial mildness, because, you see, there's nothing between you and the tobacco itself. And fact three is, of course, this box. Philip Morris was the first non-filter cigarette to come in a crush-proof box. Opinion? A cigarette that keeps better, smokes better. So get with Philip Morris yourself and check these facts. And when you do, I think you'll find it's probably the best natural smoke you ever tasted. And now to our story. When Mrs. Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the United States back in 1916, birth control was a dirty word. The police threw her into jail as they were to do seven more times during her crusade, a crusade that still faces the reasoning but unalterable opposition of the Roman Catholic Church. That crusade kept Mrs. Sanger away from her children for long periods. It helped to break up her first marriage and she suffered constant, harrowing social abuse. Mrs. Sanger, in view of all of that, let me ask you this first of all. Why did you do it? I realize that you had an intellectual conviction that birth control was a boon to mankind, but I'm sure that others have that conviction too. And so what I'd like to know is this. What events, what emotions in your life made Margaret Sanger a crusader for birth control? Well, Mr. Wallace, it's hard to say that any one thing has made one do this or that. I think from the very beginning, uh, I came with a large family. My mother died young, 11 children. That made an impression on me as a child. I was a trained nurse, went among the people. I saw women who asked to have some means whereby they wouldn't have to have another pregnancy too early after the last child, the last abortion, which many of them had. So there's a number of things that are one after the other that really made you feel that you had to do something. There are some other possible reasons that suggest themselves on reading your, bio your biography by Lawrence later. Your mother, as you say, died prematurely after bearing 11 children. She was born a Catholic, was she not? She was born a Catholic, yes. And your, In Ireland. your father was a sort of a village atheist who clashed with church authorities. 
And because of his atheism, his earnings dwindled under community pressure. You and your brothers and sisters were known as, quote, children of the devil, end quote. Could it be then that in part at least, you were driven emotionally toward the birth control movement because of antagonism toward the church, because that was a way to fight the church? No, I don't think I had anything of the kind in mind. I was, uh, I was what I would call a born humanitarian. I don't like to see people suffer. I don't like to see cruelty, even to this day. And in nursing, you see a great deal of cruelty and unnecessary suffering. At that time, there was no opposition as far as the church was concerned, any church. It was mainly the law, mm -hmm. the federal law and state laws that one had to, uh, to think of. The church was not in my mind at all. Well, in going after your motive then, and I will press you just a little bit more about that and then get to the specifics of this evening, but in your motive, in the movement, is it possible that the movement itself, the feeling of wanting to do anything that you felt was important, that perhaps that moved you a good deal. Because the fact remains that you led a movement against overwhelming pressures that stemmed back for centuries. And in doing so, according to your autobiography, you even left your first husband. And you wrote this to a friend, Mrs. Sanger. You said, where is the man to give me what the movement gives in joy and interest and freedom? Now, what was this joy, this freedom that you craved? Well, I don't remember that letter, who <laughs> it was written, but I think that it was not uh, a question of, uh, uh, of marriage at all. There was a, a certain satisfaction in uh, doing something that was going to alleviate the sufferings of women in particular, and I was quite a feminist at the time. Mm -hmm, obviously. And, uh, yes, and uh, uh, I naturally didn't want to see women take all the suffering of childbearing and her pregnancy. Please stop it just for a second. I just want to uh, bring forth as commentary that uh, she's speaking, she's saying something everybody is going to say, oh, well, suffering, suffering. Actually, what she's doing is, is she's juxtapos juxtaposing a modern scientific view against the religious view, which if you go back and look at creationism, which was the origin myth of our culture before Darwinism replaced it, men were to, to sweat with the, work with the sweat of their brow to earn their daily bread. That was a curse because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And women were going to have pain in childbirth and have to cleave to their partners as a curse. So she's not really drawing out the distinction for the listener. I'm adding that as color so we understand where she's coming from. Please continue. So it was a pleasure in a sense to think that you were striking uh, at an archaic law, which it was, mm -hmm. put it on the statute books by Anthony Comstock some years ago, and uh, no one had stood up against it, no one had, had uh, tried to, uh, uh, to change the laws. And at that time, not even a doctor had a right to use the United States mails and common carriers for books, for learning, for anything that he had to do with this question. It was considered obscene. The whole question was considered obscene. Mrs. Sanger, you have helped to spread the birth control movement not only here in the United States, but in Europe and the Orient as well. Why? Why is birth control of such vital importance internationally? Is it just to save women's suffering? Is that the only reason in your mind? 
Well, not entirely. The population question is a great concern today, and the, the rate at which uh, the birth, births come in to the, we're saving them now, at one time when children died, they didn't have the food. Mm -hmm. uh, today, our population all over the world is getting certainly better consideration and better conditions than they had at the time that I was there. I went to every country because I was invited. And uh, I didn't spread, go into the country myself. I was invited to go to Japan and uh, uh, to speak there, have eight lectures on the question of birth control and peace. Well, do you believe that birth control is essential if we want to keep millions of people across the world from starving? Is that your thesis? Say it again. Do you feel that birth control is essential to keep millions of people across the world from starving? Well, I think the birth control, if you keep your population uh, more or less static until you pick up your resources, certainly you'll keep them and prevent their starving. Well, what's more important, birth control or picking up the resources? Well, picking up the resources, there's just a limit to that, too. It's just stop so again, please. This is a Malthusian argument. This is right out of the British intellectual tradition. This is what we've been working on the Professor Penn podcast since podcast number one. Thomas Malthus posited about the same time we had Darwin and Spencer and Galton and all the rest of the clan uh, that population growth was geometric, but food production was linear. And that gap between the geometric increase in population and the linear increase in food production, that gap was starvation. Now, scientists subsequently have proved Malthus's theory to be incorrect. It's not correct. It's not borne out by the facts, or at least the facts as we know them. But that didn't stop this philosophy. Let's continue. And she cannot feed. They've had the best experts come there when MacArthur was there. Mm -hmm. and the best experts say that they have 20 million more people and they can feed. She's got to be fed outside and some, in some way. Mm -hmm. She's got to have that kind of help if she's going to keep from, from fighting. But certainly around the world there is, uh, there is potential agricultural land that is not being properly used now. Just this past year, on May 21st, the New York Times summarized an important study of the world's food resources made by Professor James Bonner of the California Institute of Technology. Professor Bonner says the world is not using one billion acres of potential agricultural land, and he adds that if this land were used and present agricultural land were improved, the entire world could be fed adequately, even if the population increased by one-third in the next 50 years. Oh, Mr. Wallace, you hear so many fantastic things of what can happen, what may happen. Uh, this and that, I've heard it for the last 30 years, any rate, of what could be done, but it's never done. And the thing is, what is it now? What have we got today? A very distinguished woman spoke to me about Arizona. And she said, I wish you wouldn't talk about population. She said, all the population of the United States can be put in one state. And I said, what state? She said, Arizona. I said, did you ever hear of Caliche? She didn't know that I was talking about a delicatessen or, or what. I said, well, Caliche is harder than any rock. And it is about three inches below the ground, where it looks beautiful. It looks as if you could have food, it looks as if you could have corn or wheat or cotton. But as a matter of fact, you have to dynamite caliche out of the ground in order to have a little shrub, have you know, a little grass mm -hmm. or a few flowers. 
so many problems that, uh, when it comes to that, and the demographers. I never heard of anyone that would agree with that, that we could have another uh, in the world. Another third. Another third. Another third. Well, you say that originally the opposition was in all law, and you have to fight against that. Today, your opposition stems mainly from where? From what source? Well, I think that the opposition uh, is mainly from the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Of the Church. Well, the hierarchy. Of the hierarchy of the Church. You feel that the, the parishioners themselves, the lay people in the Church, are not against birth control? I feel they come to all of our clinics just the same as their non-Catholics do. Exactly the same. Well, let's look at the official Catholic position opposition to birth control. I read now from a church publication called The Question Box. In forbidding birth control, it says the following. It says, the immediate purpose and primary end of marriage is the begetting of children. When the marital relation is so used as to render the fulfillment of its purposes impossible, that is by birth control, it is used unethically and unnaturally. Now, what's wrong with that position? Well, it's very wrong. It's not normal. It's not, uh, it, it has a wrong attitude toward marriage, toward love, toward the relationships between men and women. Well, the natural law, they say, is that first of all, the primary function of sex in marriage is to beget children. Well, Don't, do you disagree with that? I disagree with it 100%. Your feeling is what then? My feeling is love and the attraction between men and women. In many cases, the very finest relationship has nothing to do with bearing a child. It's secondary. Many, many times we know that. You see your birth rate, you talk to people who have very happy marriages and they're not having babies every year. Yes, I think that's a celibate attitude. Truly. Well, a celibate attitude, but you agree that Catholicism, according to the tenets of Catholicism, they rule that birth control violates not only the church's position, it isn't the church's position, but they say that it violates a natural law, as I have just explained. Therefore, birth control is a sin, no matter who practices it. Now, the violation of the natural law, according, you certainly can take no issue with the natural law as the hierarchy of the uh, Catholic Church regards it. Well, I certainly do take issue with it. I think it's untrue, and I think it's unnatural. Well, let me I ask think you... bears it out that it's an unnatural attitude to take, and how do they know? I mean, after all, they're celibates. They don't know love. They don't know marriage. They know nothing about bringing up children or any of the marriage problems of life. And yet they speak to people as if they were God. Stop, please. Those of us who study techniques that the left uses to discredit conservative thinking, you heard her say that the clergy have no basis for understanding love or sex because they're celibate and they act as if they understand God. Okay, great. Let's just understand that the birth control, abortion, eugenics, and genocide spectrum is human beings intervening into the natural process. I mean, we can agree that's what it is because if you didn't have birth control and there was sex, there'd be babies. I mean, that's true, right, Tanner? True? <coughs> yeah. Okay, so we're intervening, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, so what she's saying is, hey, you guys are playing God. You know what? No, we could make a case that both sides are playing God, but let's not be throwing stones against one side or the other. Please continue. Let me, let me ask you this question. Suppose a healthy, a well-to-do couple 
decide for some reason never to have children, use birth control all their lives, would you say that your methods are being misused, Mrs. Sanger? Not if they were intelligent people and they had some reason for thinking of children as a responsibility or the, some disease that they might have that they wouldn't like to pass on to a child. And I think it would be a very uh, unselfish attitude for them to take if there is a disease. No, I say a healthy, well-to-do couple. A couple that just doesn't want children, and for that reason, they use birth control all the way. Well, Do you think that that is a, is a misuse of your methods? I don't think it's a misuse. I think if they're intelligent adults, but they must know what they want. They must manage their lives themselves. And certainly there's nothing birth control. Then there isn't other things that you might deny yourself. I asked you your motives a little while ago at the beginning of the program, your motives in working for birth control as hard as you have for as many years as you have. You reject the principal Catholic argument against birth control as being totally invalid. What do you think is the reason, the motive of the church in forbidding birth control? You'd have to ask a Catholic that. I couldn't say what their motive is. Well, I, you, you couldn't say officially what their motive is, but you certainly must have an opinion about it, Mrs. Sanger. Well, I'm, I, I don't have much to do with, with the, the hierarchy. Well, and I know that the people that come to our organization and want to have the same methods, or whatever it is that one can have, to prevent a pregnancy, that those women will say to us, I, we ask their religion very often, and they say, I am a Catholic, I've been raised in the Catholic Church, and this, my church is wrong on this. This is the one thing. I will never be anything else, but my church is wrong, and this one thing. And that is said over and over and over again. So what the motive is? Well, you won't hazard a guess. I don't care to. Thank you. Uh, may I ask you why? Now, I know that in private, and uh, in actually in public discussions, I think, prior to this time, you have been willing to state your understanding of what the motives of the church are, and now you would, uh, you would rather remain silent. May I ask you why? Well, simply because I don't think that uh, uh, this church has changed in its attitude. Some of the hierarchy have changed their attitude. You can't say the same thing that you might have said a year ago or two years ago as to your belief or as to your opinion. Mm -hmm. and, and then have you heard it said that the reason that the church is against birth control is because they want more Catholics? I've read it. Do you believe it? Well, they, they, if you read their papers, where they uh, point out Boston, that that's what has happened in Boston and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. They have simply outbred the Protestants, and they're, they've, in Boston and Massachusetts, they have control. I've read that in their own papers. Of course, the church stop, please. There's a subtext here between Catholics and Protestants, protesters, who are the protesters. Well, that would be all the people that the Holy Roman Empire put under the sword in the expansion of the Roman Empire westward towards uh, Great Britain to England. And uh, a lot of this impulse, uh, this anti-Catholic impulse, really comes out of that ancient tradition of war and subjugation. Please continue. The church's answer, and I read now from a pamphlet published by the Redemptist, uh, Redemptorist Fathers in Missouri, says as follows. It says that point of view about wanting more Catholics is nonsense. Quote, the Catholic Church does not command Catholic husbands and wives to have even one child. The Church considers it more than normally meritorious for them to have no children if they mutually and perpetually give up the use of the marriage right for the love of God. All right. 
I don't quote what they, what they do, so they, I think that the question in my mind is that they, they do and uh, order their own people to as they wish. But I object to their uh, having the same rules for people who are not the same religion. Well, they believe, you see, that it is a natural law, not a Catholic law, but a natural law, and therefore a sin not just for Catholics, but a sin for all peoples. And I think that there are other religious groups that very, very orthodox Jews feel the same way about birth control. Uh, let's look at another argument against birth control, Mrs. Sanger, published in Red Book magazine in March of 1956. It says birth control is a devastating social force which tends to weaken the moral fiber of the community. Immunity from parenthood encourages promiscuity particularly when unmarried persons can so easily avail themselves of the devices. Do you doubt that? I doubt it. You do? Certainly. Then let me read from a news story in the Philadelphia Daily News on June 10, 1942. The story quotes you as urging the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps to give its members, quote, preventive measures against pregnancy, end quote. And you add, quote, Abortion and illegitimacy are bound to result if the government doesn't recognize human nature, end quote. In other words, you were not advocating uh, Christian morality, but rather ways for single women to avoid bearing illegitimate children. Where was this taken from? Philadelphia Daily News, June 10, 1942, direct quote from Margaret Sanger. I doubt it. I don't believe I ever made such a remark. Well... In the same vein, in your autobiography, which you cannot disavow, you wrote the following about sexologist Havelock Ellis. You said he's been able to clarify the question of sex and free it from the smudginess connected with it from the beginning of Christianity. Now, why, what do you mean by the smudginess connected with sex, and why do you blame it on Christianity? Let's stop for a second. This uh, <clears throat> beginning of Christianity quote, what came before Christianity? Paganism. Maybe we'll do a Professor Penn podcast on the rituals and the, what we know of the rituals and rites and rules and mores of paganism. And they, the pagans had their own thing going on. And she's saying, well, when the Christians came in, uh, sex got smudgy. So there's something going on here that's very ancient and very deep. Mike Wallace either doesn't know about these issues, so he can't ask the kind of poignant questions that we need to hear answers to or he's just making this more accessible because these issues have their roots in philosophy and history. Please continue. Well, there's many reasons, of course, to say that we have more records of it from the dawn of Christianity. And I think I was speaking of Hubble Ellis as having clarified the question of homosexuals, making the thing... Uh, not exactly a perverted thing, but a thing that a person is born with, different kinds of eyes, different kinds of, a, of a structure, and so forth. But he didn't make all homosexuals uh, perverts. I felt that he helped clarify that to the medical profession and to the scientists of the world, as perhaps one of the first ones to do, to do that. That was one of the things that I meant in that. Mr. Sanger, do you uh, disagree that Catholics, or do you, do you feel that Catholics should not have a right to have a say when a city administration contemplates spending their tax dollars on birth control or the dissemination of birth control information, something that Catholics believe is sinful. 
that they have a right to say what they... Do you feel that they don't have a right to have a say when a city administration contemplates spending their dollars, tax dollars, on birth control? For instance, here in New York, Catholics comprise about 45% of our population. They're the largest single group. Well, don't you think they should have the democratic right to lobby against having their money spent, their tax money spent, for something that they consider evil? Well, I suppose they have a right. They certainly do it. But so have the others. They're only 45% of the population. That's, that is not the, the majority. But they have a right to get up and... Certainly. Mm -hmm. I have no objection to their having them say that, but I think we could have the same right. I say we. I mean non-Catholics. Well, of course, this is a little bit at variance with something that you told our reporter earlier this week. You said earlier this week, it's not only wrong, it should be made illegal for any religious group to prohibit dissemination of birth control, even among its own members. In other words, you would like to see the government legislate uh, religious beliefs in a certain sense. Where these strange things come to, uh, that I said them is what I should like to know when. Well, now, uh, you know that my reporter spent a good deal of time with you. He's... Uh, very accurate young man. Yes. And this so is a I. this is a this is a specific quote. Well, I don't think I accept. We stop for a second. I just want to read this again. This is Margaret Sanger's own words. She talked about three groups of people, and she said the religious and their scruples prevent their exercising control over their numbers. And Sanger concluded, quote, there is no doubt in the minds of all thinking people, that the procreation of this group should be stopped. In other words, because I believe in God, I'm not a thinking person. I'm a dummy. Please continue. What are your religious beliefs, Mrs. Sanger? Do you believe in a God in the sense of a divine being who rewards or punishes people after death? Well, I have a different attitude about uh, the divine. I feel that we have divinity within us. And the more we express the good part of our lives, uh, the more the divine within us uh, expresses itself. Uh, I suppose I would call myself an Episcopalian by, uh, by religion. And there's uh, many other. If you've traveled around the world, you get quite a bit of the feeling of uh, all, all religions have so much alike in the divine part of our own being. And I suppose you just couldn't put that in a book or you couldn't put it to a... Uh, a phrase or a sentence. Do you believe in sin? When I say believe, I don't mean believe in committing sin. Do you believe there is such a thing as a as sin? Well, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being, practically. Delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things just mark when they're born. That, to me, is the greatest sin that people can, can commit. But sin in the ordinary sense that we regard it, do you believe or do you not believe? Well, what? What would they be? Do you believe that infidelity is a sin? Well, I don't, I'm not going to specify what I think is sin. I've stated what I think is the worst sin. The yes, sin. but then you asked me to say what, and I, and I said what, and, and, and uh, you refused to answer me? Ah, yes. I don't know about infidelity. It has so many personalities to it, and what a person's own belief is. You mm. can't, I couldn't generalize on um, any of those things as, as being sin. Murder is a sin. Well, that's naturally thing. Murder is a, is a sin or not. It's a terrible act. Stop for a In second. Just a so Margaret Sanger is basically saying there is no sin because she's well aware what sin means. It's a word that means a separation between man and God. And if you don't believe in God, then there's no sin. 
So she's being very upfront about it. We just, Mike Wallace, you know Mike Wallace. I love Mike Wallace. I watched him every Sunday on 60 Minutes when I was younger. I wish he would have drilled down on this. And of course, they're both dead. So we're going to have to continue. Mrs. Sanger, I'd like to ask you about another social problem here in the United States, divorce. Nearly 400,000 couples get divorced in this country each year. And I'd like to get your views on the cause and possible prevention of this problem. But we'll get Mrs. Sanger's answer to that question in just 60 seconds. One look at this cabin cruiser, and you'd know it's new. One puff of this cigarette, and you know it's new. It's Philip Morris, and you know by the taste. Philip Morris tastes natural, and that's why smokers like it. And they like the man's kind of mildness in Philip Morris. No filter, no fooling. Nothing artificial between you and the tobacco itself. And the box. Here's something else smokers like. It's practical, crush-proof. If you haven't smoked a Philip Morris lately, get with it. You'll find a natural taste, a man's kind of mildness, a crush-proof box. Get with Philip Morris. Probably the best natural smoke you ever tasted. Get with Philip Morris in regular pack or crush-proof box, probably the best natural smoke you ever tasted. Now then, Mrs. Sanger, there are nearly 400,000 divorces or annulments in America each year. What, and this is hard to do in the short time, of course, that we have, what would you recommend to cut down our divorce rate? Well, as a, a great many box clinics are including in the work uh, that they do in birth control clinics, having marriage counseling. So when the woman or the man come and complain of their marriage on the skids, mm -hmm. we invite them to come and have special talks with some of our psychiatrists or others who are making a study of that all over the country, mm -hmm. where we have about 500 clinics. They almost all include uh, marriage counseling and marriage erection. May I, may I ask you this? Could it be that women in the United States have become too independent, that they've followed the lead of women like Margaret Sanger, by neglecting family life for a career. Let me quote from your biography describing your second marriage to Noah Slee. Quote, in New York, Mrs. Sanger maintained every clause of their compact of independence. They had separate apartments. They telephoned each other for dinner or theater engagements or passed notes back and forth. Would you call this a sound formula for marriage, Mrs. Sanger? Uh, different people, yes. It certainly was for me and for my husband. We had a very happy marriage consulting. He had different friends than I had. And uh, I don't believe in forcing. After uh, all, well, we were two adults. Mm -hmm. And uh, forcing your friends on uh, another person who may have an entirely different outlook. It worked out very well. I know that it did. You have two sons. One final question. You have two sons. Mm -hmm. How many children have they? Would you like to see them? I would indeed. <laughs> As well. <laughs> How many children? Uh, six in this family? Five boys to a girl in that family. And in the other family? Two girls. Two girls. Miss mm -hmm. Sanger, I thank you so much for taking time out and coming and talking to us here this evening. And Mr. Wells, I've never smoked, but I'm going to begin to take up smoking and, and use Philip Morris as my, as, as my the cigarette for me to take. <laughs> well, I thank you very much, Mrs. Sanger. Indeed. In the eyes of some, Margaret Sanger has been a heroine. 
In the eyes of others, she's been a destructive force. The purpose of this interview has been not, of course, to try to resolve this issue, but to open it to a little sensible discussion. This was done with the feeling that all of us, regardless of our beliefs, can do nothing but profit from a free exchange of ideas. I'll bring you a rundown on next week's interview. Thank you, Tim. In Thank you. You know, Mike Wallace got to smoke when he was doing these interviews. Yeah. Wow. He, he wow. had a cigarette lit what through the, that whole 25 the whole minutes. Time. Oh, that was great, right? Sanger's eugenic policies included an exclusionary immigration policy. Let me just say that again, an exclusionary immigration policy. And if you take a look at when she was at her heyday, who were they excluding? Well, that'd be the European Jews. Just a sidebar. I'm not, I'm not trying to take it. I'm going to be like Mike Wallace. I'm submitting this to you for your review. I think you know where Professor Penn comes down on this, but you really don't. This is a complex issue. What I'm trying to say is that we have a eugenicist scientism that portrays itself as being capable to intervene into the life process of humanity and decide who lives and dies. We've seen it pop up. The Nazis, oh, that was lots of people killed behind that. There's lots of other eugenics that goes on that is much less publicized. Many genocides that were in this vein of thinking. Uh, but there's a continuum, a continuum from birth control to abortion to eugenics, breeding, breeding, eugenics, breeding, to genocide. These are all related. I, I mean, maybe I'm the first person that said that. I've never heard it said like this. I'm sure I'll find it said. But we need to understand as the American citizens that these issues are related. Like a slippery slope of ice. And here in Minnesota, right here in uh, 45, Senate District 45, we have Dr. Dr. Kelly Morrison. That'd be Dr. Dr. Kelly Morrison, the doctor, the doctor. The doctor Kelly Morrison is involved in uh, uh, legislative committees on aging and the well-being of the aged. Oh, and then uh, there's a lot of uh, euthanasia settlement that's breaking out here in Minnesota. You know, the first bill that the all, they call them Democrats. Great. Call them Democrats. You call them whatever you want to call them. First bill, first bill, driver's licenses will trigger an automatic registration for voting. So when you get a Minnesota state driver's license, you are automatically registered to vote. Second bill, illegal immigrants to the state of Minnesota can lawfully get driver's licenses. In fact, I think the number is 80,000 that are applying in the first wave. 80,000. 80, and isn't the driver's license what they used to do voting? Oh, I'm not, not trying to say there's any illegal voting. I'm just saying this is what these winners did when they took over the, the control of uh, Minnesota governance. Get a driver's license, get registered to vote automatic. Automatic opt-in. Number two, illegal aliens, illegal immigrants, Get a Minnesota driver's license. Oh, they're automatically registered to vote. 
That doesn't mean they're going to vote or that it's legal for them to vote. It means somebody has to sort it out. I'm sure that's a perfect process, right? And the third bill was abortion at a full term. In other words, a mother could choose at birth to abort her child. Not 20 weeks, not five weeks. You know, at birth, a fully viable infant can be aborted, which, you know, historically was called infanticide. Now it's called the law of the state of Minnesota. Well, they're also working on euthanasia, which is the uh, ability of a doctor to work with the patient to end their life because they're suffering. And thus and so. You know, at the root of this whole thing is doctors. Just want to say, doctors and lawyers. Doctors and lawyers, Gleichtelschung in Nazi Germany, they Nazified the country with doctors and lawyers. And look what's going on all over the world. Because, you know, there are professionals. We have great respect for our professionals. Our universities and our colleges are all about turning out these professionals. And you know what they teach in those universities and colleges? Not the Bible. That would. Did you ever learn any Bible studies going through the public school system? Um, yes, I actually did. There was a small little section of my history class that talked about world religion, and we did touch on Christianity and that world religion. You did? Yes. How much time did he get? Um, my amazing teacher only got like four weeks for that topic. I think it was probably even shorter, but we really didn't stick on it too long. You didn't really go to a Christian school. You went to a secular public education, correct? Correct. Yeah. Did you learn the origin of the species and the evolution of the species uh, when you went to school? Yep. In eighth grade, I had a biology class that taught it that way. And was it taught as if it was the truth or as a theory? Um, I, I guess I, I cannot remember. I just remember the teacher talking about it. I, I don't remember him really. I would say a theory then because he was just talking. He kind of like introduced it as an idea, but he wasn't telling us if it was fact or fiction. Okay. But would you say it's a prevailing zeitgeist amongst the doomers that we have evolution, that evolution and that uh, a faith or a reliance on creationism is diminished in the face of science? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Just want to be sure. Yeah. Because for us, the boomers, that's what it was. It was that way for us and you're downstream of us. So, you know, I'm just wondering if anything, I didn't think anything had changed. Yeah. You know, I'm not really about uh, an either or. I'm looking for balance. Now, of course, we all are free American citizens to believe in the practices and live our lives. To pursue our happiness is an unalienable right granted to me by my creator to pursue my life as I see fit. But the ideas that are banging around in my head, I didn't come up with them. Somebody stuck them in there. I've been programmed like a computer. It takes a lot of personal study and personal work to try to tease out where things came from and to get to the point where you can start to think through things independently. It's called critical thinking, something that we have a paucity of in 2023. So a lot more being told what to think and a lot less being taught how to think. And that's why I always say you have to discover it for yourself. I'm very aware about how loaded this issue is. And I'm being very careful what I'm saying about it because. Each one of you is absolutely entitled to make your own decision about it. 
But what I'm trying to say is, coming out of the eugenicist impulse of the 1800s, which was developed in the British academic tradition to justify their business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy, that's what it was. Eugenics justifies the domination of the weak by the strong, because after all, it breeds a better, a better race. Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger. Uh, later, she proposed that, quote, permits for parenthood shall be issued upon application by city, county, or state authorities to married couples. I mean, come on. She's saying if you want to have a baby, you got to get a license. That's pretty extreme ideology. We're not quite there yet, are we? Maybe we're getting close. So, uh, just want to take a look at Margaret Sanger. Want to look back at her. Uh, personal anecdote. I told this story before. I actually met a clone of this woman. Unbelievable. I was sitting in a meeting with uh, Royce White. This is several years ago. And some visitors came. And this woman looked and sounded remarkably like Margaret Sanger. I mean, terrifyingly so. It's a flashback, so I'm going to have a flashback moment. And this woman and her friend came in, and she was kind of Sangeresque herself. They were older, and you know, past the age of 60 for sure, maybe past the age of 70, and uh, looked just like Margaret Sanger. And I mentioned the word God. I was not pounding the Bible. I, and she looked at me, and I've told the story. She said, is that a litmus test? And I said, what do you mean a litmus test? The word, the faith in God. Because, you know, it was a Republican Party event. And I said, you know, I'm not into litmus tests. I'm into freedom and uh, people talking. You know, because as a political operative, if I'm meeting someone, the first pair, you know, first sense out of their mouth is that's a litmus test. I'm not taking that bait. I want to talk to people. You know, I got people hate me here that have never met me. Spread rumors about me, never met me. And you know who you are and you're watching me. And you suck. Because I've asked you to meet me, and when people sit down and meet with me, they realize I'm very reasonable, and I'm I'm looking to learn from everybody. And uh, this woman was sat there, and you no, know, there's no litmus test. And Royce was sitting there. We were, we were all happy to meet her. I mean, you know, it was a new person. We were being very warm and welcoming, and she took out that Sangeresque bony finger and pointed it at Royce, and she said, "I." quote word for word because it's seared into my memory. The reason I'm for abortion is because you people abandon your children. And the whole table of men just went back like, whoa, that was very intense. As was Margaret Sanger. And I just want to say the way she was itching herself, I have to ask myself, was she a heroin junkie? Because I never saw anybody itch themselves so much. In an interview, and this was a woman who was used to doing interviews. She was famous, and she's itching and pulling and scratching. I wonder if she was a heroin junkie. I mean, I just never seen anything like that. That's supposed to be a humorous sidebar. Don't take me too serious, because I don't take myself serious sometimes. But, you know, I'm just saying, what the hell is that? Let's go on here. Let You know, I'm saying there's a continuum. A continuum from birth control to abortion to euthanasia to genocide. Let's look at this clip under number three, 
euthanasia. We'll just watch a little bit of it, okay? The euthanasia program was kind of in so far differed from the earlier programs that it was not it was not legal, so to speak. It was just a letter of Hitler, which opened up the possibility. And uh, if one looks back, one has to say that almost all psychiatrists were positive for it. Almost all of them. Who would have thought in 1933 that handicapped people, ill people, would be murdered? This never occurred to anyone. It was beyond all imagination. I can remember that Ilma, unlike my other younger siblings, developed late. She learned to walk late, she always had to be carried around and be fed. She was a pretty child, such a pretty child with big, dark brown eyes. The sad thing is, at some point Irma disappeared from my family's memory. My mother, with so many children, always sick, just couldn't take care of Irma. My father must have visited her in the beginning. The next time I heard about Irma was in 1945. My father told me that Irma apparently died in Vienna. Irma had arrived in this children's ward with 13 other children. The youngest was probably three, and Irma was the oldest at 13. There they were subjected to illegal human medical experiments. Apparently, the children, the victims, were horribly starved, reduced to mere skeletons. In the end, most of them died of exhaustion and hunger and doses of medicines, or they were given a lethal injection. A worthless life, that's what they called it. Worthless life. That was the official term. Stop, please. And that was Margaret Sanger's term that she thought the greatest sin, if she was going to use that word, was, uh, you know, babies coming into the world that carried diseases from their parents. And what's a disease? That never got defined. Mike Wallace could have said, oh, Mrs. Sanger, could you please define what are the diseases that you consider to be this great sin? And she actually talked about the uh, economic material aspect of poverty and starvation that was associated with this Malthusian concept, which is discredited. Uh, but these are very similar descriptions of lives not worth living. So you can see the uh, relationship between birth control to prevent life's not worth living and abortion to end life's not worth living and euthanasia to end life's worth not living, and genocide, which ends life's not worth living. And who's at the bottom of all this? The educated, the college-educated PhD and the medical doctor and the lawyer. Okay, this is not something 
I've ever thought about because I'm just the dumbass Professor Penn. I don't sit there. And I was thinking when I was watching this, I have five children. They, you know, I took them to all their well-being checkups. And the doctor sat there and compared their weight to a chart of normal weights and their height to a chart of normal heights and their blood work to a chart of normal blood work. You know who crowned these people the arbiter of what's normal? They're defining a normalcy for us in a very euthanasia kind of way, and we accept it. You see, again, it's we the people because we're so afraid of death. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Makes perfect sense to be afraid of death, right? Yeah. We're so afraid of it, we go to these clinics and these people define for us what our health and well-being is. We have changed the definition of health and well-being to a very scientific one. i got to be very careful about how I say this because, again, my torturers at YouTube, hey, I'm not saying science is not good. I get a lot of scientific benefits. I love scientific benefits. I love. I could have been a scientist. In fact, my mother and father really wanted me to be a doctor, and they put tremendous pressure on me to be a doctor, and I was trained all the way until I said, bah, screw off, I'm not doing this. I didn't even know why I did it at the time. So we're not taking a run against science. We're taking a run against people who have no sacred honor. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying there's a continuum here between sangerism, which is birth control, to abortion, to euthanasia, to genocide. It's all about preventing life based on human agency. Human decision replaces divine dominion. We're replacing the dominion of God over all things with human agency. Boy, that's interesting. We are an underground transmission. I do not want to get deplatformed. I'm bringing up issues that I hope you can think about and come to your own conclusions. We'll have to talk about critical thinking because I know it's no longer taught. We got to think critically about these issues. If we choose something, let us at least know where it comes from and let us know where it can take us because we have issues in here we have to tease through. Well, let's go a little bit farther because, you know, we tend to view this as a Nazi problem over in Germany. And I'm saying, hey, Nazism was a political movement. These are ideas in our head. Can you play this one, War on the Weak Eugenics in America? Let's play a little of this one. At the turn of the 20th century, rapid industrialization and urbanization led to a social upheaval, defined by goals for a civilization free of violence, disease, and mental ailments. However, the means by which this utopian society would be attempted would include some of the most profound ethical violations in the history of the United States. president was behind it, liberals were behind it, conservatives were behind it, even the Catholic Church at one point was behind it. Intense growth of American industry, agricultural mechanization, 
and widespread immigration led to the first major migration away from the farms and into the city, which was now expanding faster than adequate housing could be provided. The solution to the modern problems of an industrialized society required increased government involvement in the social sphere, a philosophy known as progressivism. The construct of scientific management offered a methodical means of social engineering. Geneticists of the age could prove, through the use of human pedigrees and their knowledge of plant and animal genetics, that degeneracy was an inheritable trait. It seemed only right that if a society free of all mental and physical ailments, free of violence and crime, illiteracy and foolishness, it seemed only right to end the reproductive capabilities of people expressing these traits. Eugenics was the result of an America unwilling to make social changes, an upper class fearful of its laboring counterparts. Eugenics placed the blame of a social quandary on individual races and classes, and thus freed from culpability the industrial, scientific, and political barons of the time. Can you stop that? That is a very critical line. It's really interesting. I was just thinking about that for my conclusion, and I didn't realize it was in this. This was a blame-shifting program, okay? Scientism has managed to blame the people and humanity for what might be the shortcomings of technology. Let me say this again. The problem might not be humanity. It might be science and technology and how it's developed. We're going to talk about this. I'm going to go a third time. The scientific, the benefits of science, the, the barons who are the benefits of the scientific method found a way to blame the people for what it might have been shortcomings with the applications of science. Very deep. A little bit like the crown. Sounds very crown-esque to me. Let's continue. Cold Spring Harbor, New York, 1910. Charles B. Davenport, along with Harry H. Laughlin, both biologists and members of the American Breeders Association, found the Eugenics Record Office with financial help from the Carnegie Institution. The ERO would be the headquarters of eugenic research in the United States for the next 34 years. Using various research methods, including human pedigrees, hereditary questionnaires, interviewing groups of special interest such as circus performers, and collecting census data, the ERO was able to justify the administration of eugenic laws nationwide, including immigration and marriage restrictions, race segregation, and forced sterilization of criminals and other undesirables. The ERO, however, was not only able to justify the eugenics atrocities, but integrated them into popular culture to make eugenics and related terms such as race hygiene household words. Popular literature published in the 20s often donned eugenics in their subject matter, such as these manuals on raising a healthy family. Clergymen preached of the necessity for good marriages. Perhaps even more disturbing were the contest held at many state fairs, where awards were given to the fittest family, those with the purest pedigrees and, undoubtedly, the most attractive phenotypes would receive awards, such as this medal with an inscription reading, Yay, I have a goodly heritage. The eugenics movement um, spawned lots of um, people who were considered, even in their own time, out on the fringe. Uh, who, who even endorsed such things as euthanasia, but that was not a mainline part of the movement. It certainly became parts of the movement internationally, 
but not so much here in America. On March 9, 1907, the Indiana State Senate, in a vote of 28 to 16, made history by being the first jurisdiction in the world to force the sterilization of citizens it deemed unfit. Can we unfit stop? To exist. I'm not going to delve into this, but for those of you who would like to see it for themselves, study the history of Indiana. Study the history of Indiana, and this first vote will make perfect sense to you. Please continue. Unfit to reproduce. Connecticut was soon to follow. By the time Laughlin of the ERO had published his suggestion on how to implement legislation for forced human sterilization, 12 states had already put into place sterilization laws of their own. By 1924, 3,000 socially inadequate people had been sterilized. That same year, based on Laughlin's model, Aubrey E. Strode drafted Virginia's Eugenical Sterilization Act in an attempt to rid the state of defective persons. It passed in Virginia's General Assembly by a landslide. Stop, please. We are talking about the United States of America here. We're not talking about Nazi Germany. We're talking about the United States of America before the Nazis took power in Germany. Please continue. Immediately, the Virginia Colony for the Epileptic and Feeble-Minded selected 17-year-old Carrie Buck to be the first human sterilized under the act. Carrie had a feeble-minded child, the result of a raping by one of her relatives, and was daughter of a feeble-minded mother, Emma, already a resident on the Virginia Colony. Carrie, purportedly carrying the genetic traits of feeble-mindedness and sexual promiscuity, was a fine candidate, as the law stated those to be sterilized must be probable potential parents of socially inadequate offspring. Carrie's feeble-mindedness was based on a male disposition by Laughlin, who had never met Carrie, and her sexual promiscuity was based on the testimony of her schoolteacher that she sent flirtatious notes to schoolboys. Carrie became the first person in Virginia to be sterilized under the new law on October 19, 1927. In the words of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, official deliverer of the opinion of the United States Supreme Court in the case of Buck v. Bell, it is better for all of the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Vivian, Carrie's feeble-minded daughter, received bees on her first grade report card. Buck v. Bell justified the sterilizations of over 8,000 Virginians. Over the history of the United States, 33 states have enacted statutes under which 60,000 Americans underwent compulsory sterilizations. To this day, Buck v. Bell has never been overruled. Nazi Germany embraced the eugenics movement from the United States and just upped it in its efficiency. It should now be apparent that Germany's racial theories did not take place in a vacuum, nor can the fundamental philosophies and beliefs that would eventually lead to the atrocities of the Nazi state be attributed solely to German authorities. In fact, German scientists expressed a great affinity towards U.S. eugenic laws. A young Adolf Hitler wrote positively of the U.S.'s immigration restrictions, more specifically how the law refuses immigration on principle by simply excluding certain races from naturalization in his book Mein Kampf. Shortly prior to mobilizing the most comprehensive eugenics legislation in modern history, Gerhard Wagner, head of the National Socialist Physician League, stated that America's eugenic policies should be used as a model for Germany to follow. Marie Kopp of the American Committee on Maternal Health proclaimed that the Nazi system of seeking out those to be sterilized was administered in entire fairness and was 
formulated after careful study of the California experiment, which had been responsible for 2,500 of the 3,000 involuntary sterilizations in the U.S. prior to 1924. The ERO boasted on how the German statute on race hygiene read almost identical to Laughlin's model sterilization law. Laughlin had such a significant impact on Nazi racial legislature that he was awarded an honorary degree from the University of Heidelberg. Laughlin thanked the university for reaffirming the common understanding of German and American scientists of the nature of eugenics. Stop, please. The common understanding of scientists. The common understanding of scientists. Please continue. This common understanding would be translated into the law on preventing hereditarily ill progeny, which would be responsible for over 375,000 sterilizations in the Nazi state. A number so impressive, one American eugenics advocate complained, the Germans are beating us at our own game. The sterilization program of the Nazi state, modeled after Laughlin's law and other U.S. eugenic theories, would be a gross prelude to the exterminations of the Holocaust. But even before the gas chambers were opened for the racist and anti-Semitic persecutions we know all too well, they were opened in October 1939 for the systematic murder of the mentally ill citizens of Germany. Sadly, this practice was not faced with nearly as much stigmatism within the states, as euthanasia had long been discussed by American eugenicists as a solution for the feeble-minded. So when, when people saw how eugenics can easily be abused, by the power of the state, they said, that's it, this is a, a monstrous idea that you should keep a distance from. It is now the dawn of the 21st century, and advancements in technology and medicine have excelled beyond even the most ambitious of projections. Science that eugenicists of the 20th century could only have dreamed of appear in our news every single day. ...of stem cell research... ...and picking the genes of our children. Cloning of embryos for their destruction. They've discovered stem cells in a new place. The embryo has a genetic disease. Genetic test. Is it a danger? It's always a danger when there are technologies that can be used and abused. And I think that the history of the eugenics movement uh, tells us when a technology actually exists, people will try to use it, sometimes for reasons it was never intended to be used. With the mapping of the human genome, prenatal testing, implantation genetic diagnosis, therapeutic cloning, and stem cell therapy, we find ourselves entering a promising world of genetic medicine. It is with this great power, however, that comes the need for even greater responsibility, sensitivity, and accountability. Thank you. That was very well done. Wasn't that well done, that piece? Yeah, I thought that was a really good video. Unbelievable. You know, you find stuff out there when you're looking around. I read constantly. I read seven or eight newspapers every day. I'm constantly looking. I'm reading books. I'm trying to find it for myself. And I can point you, my, my listeners and my viewers, in a direction, and I can tell you what I think. But if I tell you what I think, that's not really accomplishing my goal. My goal is to critically think myself and share my process of discovery with you in the hopes you'll go look for yourself. Because to really get unmoored from these judgments, to really unleash, uh, to loose myself from these judgments, takes a lot of work. I mean, I went two times a year from the time I was an infant to see Dr. Leonard and Dr. Steinberg for my well-being baby checkup, this is in the 50s. And, uh, you know, we're supposed to get our checkups, our preventive care, all these things, you know, sort through this. This is some a decision that every individual person has to make for their own self-governance. 
This is an issue of self-governance. And I like to govern myself and my own well-being. And I am not the kind of person that hands himself over because some uh, gentleman in a white coat with a stethoscope comes up and portrays to me that he's the arbiter of life and death in my life. I, you know, I'm just not buying that. That's just me. That's just me. Might have something to do with the fact that I grew up with a lot of doctors because that was part of the academic community I grew up in, and they beat their wives and they were drug addicts and uh, they masturbated the same as everybody else. You know, they just did. They, you know, they acted special, but actually when you really got to know them, they were not special. They acted special. I prefer someone that doesn't act special. That's just me. I'm very down to earth. Ten, I got to ask you a question. Yeah. Do you think I'm down to earth? Oh yeah, you're very, you're very down to earth. I am, aren't I? It was when I first met you. It was very intimidating. I didn't know how to feel when I would talk to you, just because you're so down to earth. I was just like, is, is this man for real? Like, is this really just how honest he is? It, it was some time. Yeah. Because I've cultivated that out of a religious intentionality at the center of my life. You know, when I walk through a, a store, I say hello to everybody. I talk to all my neighbors. I'm trying to be uplifting, and I really mean it. I have to say, when I was younger, it was more of an act, like it was an instrumentality to get something. I'm not doing it to be instrumental. I'm doing it because it became me. And that's why I say your habit is very important. The habit, your discipline, your habit becomes your character. So what I started out, I, maybe I read it in a book. Well, actually, I know where I got it. Somebody that I looked up to said, you got to be nice all the time. I said, okay, boss, I'll do it. So I was nice to everybody. Because he noticed, like when we were going through the airport, I wasn't friendly to the people that we were renting the cars from. You get it. That's a human being. Come on. So I, you know, I, to fit in with that work organization, I started to change my habits, which eventually changed my character, and then it changed my destiny. So I'm going to say that some of these things that we acquire, we have to do it quite consciously. It maybe goes against how we were raised, for example. Take a walk. How many in my audience go out and take a walk or work out every day? Like I got up this morning. I have so many things to do. And one of the things I want to do is I want to stay up with my, my movement, my, the way I breathe and train. And I just have, I mean, I, I couldn't even teach it to you. I wish I could, but it's the flower of 40 years of training and thinking and discovering. And I don't do it every day. In fact, I don't do it most days because I've been walking and, you know, I can, I do different things. I'm thinking, got to do this. And I got up and I did it. And that's so important. That's a habit I'm going to enforce upon myself because I don't want to lose that because I know it's good for my well-being. So we want to find habits that enhance our well-being and the well-being of the people around us. That makes our character and that changes our destiny. And we got a whole group of people out there that are saying, well, hey, there are human beings that are substandard. We don't need them around. I, Dr. Penn, not Professor Penn, let's just say I'm here, Dr. Penn, Dr. Professor Penn. I'm going to decide that, uh, you know, you are an imbecile. So we're going to take you to the gas chamber 
and we're going to kill you so that there's no more imbeciles. Now, when you do that, you're saying you don't believe in God right off the bat. So what we have here is a group of people that believe in scientism and that they have the right and power to be technocratic experts and tell we the people how we are to live our lives. And then we got we the people who have given up our self-governance for the benefits of science and the convenience that comes with it. We've given up our self-governance. So we got these technocrats. There's not that many of these people. And they lord over us. They actually are condescending towards us. As President Obama said, these religious people cling to their God and their guns, their Bible and their guns. You know, it's very condescending. Or Hillary Clinton, the deplorables. They call, she called the people the deplorables. They're deplorables. These people think that because they're educated, they're better. And I'm going to say what they're educated in is the British intellectual tradition of slavery, drugs, and piracy. That's what I think they ex- that their expertise, the people that are running the world, have expertise in operationalizing slavery, drugs, and piracy. And that's what this movement's about. It's about human freedom. It's about human well-being, and it's about each one of us self-governing. When we take our governance back to ourselves, these people are disempowered. We don't need to fight with them. We don't need to have a conflict with them. We need to disempower them by re-empowering ourselves. And on that note, I want to thank you again for joining me. I'd like you to go back and watch Margaret Sanger. She's hard to understand. I listened to it three times. Please listen to it. I'm not trying to make a conclusion. I want you to hear it from the source herself. Thank you for joining. Have a great weekend. Have a very uh, warm weekend. We're still at the end of summer. Get outside, and I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday night.